Welcome. Thank you for joining us in today's AC21 teleconference from the employer's perspective. As most of you probably know, AC21 stands for the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, commonly referred to as AC21. Today's topic, we're going to talk about green card portability and what it means, the implications for employers and therefore for national employees, the respective obligations of each of the parties and what they all need to be aware of in order to improve the chances of an approval, minimize the risks involved, and reach the respective goals of the parties. We will also discuss situations where employers and their employees' interests may diverge during the AC21 portability process and what each side needs to appreciate and understand in order to continue pursuing the green card in a manner prescribed by law. Many of you are familiar with the employment-based green card process and also, most likely, you are familiar with the portability provisions under the AC21 law. However, since USCIS, until today, almost 10 years after the law was passed, has not issued or promulgated any kinds of regulations, uh, it really makes issues a little bit more complicated because all we have is the statute, the interpretations as can be read by a, any lawyer or any person, and discussions that we've had with senior USCIS officials, which can sometimes vary depending on the individual. Uh, so it has resulted in some complications, intricacies, controversial issues, and we have been seeing denials of cases when it really shouldn't have been denied. So before we get delve into a little bit more of the complex issues, uh, Aaron, let's get started with just the basics. What was AC21 really designed to accomplish? Well, hello, everyone, and my name is Aaron Finkelstein. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about AC21 is it, it has a large scope. AC21, there's the context of portability for H-1Bs. There's the context of H H1, uh, AC21, the ability to get extensions beyond the six-year limit on H-1Bs based on how the green card is processing. Today, I think our primary focus is going to really be how it impacts the green card process itself uh, for employment-based people that are going through permanent residency from the employment-based perspective, um, and not only how it impacts the green card process itself, but what the flexibilities really are as it relates to being able to move your process from one employer to another. AC21 was created with the thought in mind that there are substantially long delays in obtaining a green card through employment-based processes. The long de delays could be because of lengthy adjudications, in other words, long processing time by the government. It could be because the visa bulletin is backlogged, especially for countries like India, which sometimes can be five years, eight years, ten years, uh, with backlogs that are in existence. And a person who's going through their process may find themselves in a position where things have changed or developed and it makes sense for them or for the company for them to be able to move on. So what AC21 does in this context is it allows a time certain where an employee can basically pick up their process 
put it in their pocket, and move on to another company as long as they're performing the same or similar type of job duties. Okay, thank you so much, Aaron. Actually, before I jump to Anna, I forgot an important uh, pers- uh, point of view, which is this is Sheila Murthy, uh, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. And with me uh, on today's all-star panel, I have attorney Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm, and attorney Anna Stepanova, our supervising attorney in the special projects department. So, Anna, let's go over and try to figure this out. So, in a scenario where the individual has never worked for the sponsoring employer or ends up having to leave that sponsoring employer, will it require or necessitate the filing of the AC21 portability documents? Um, Hello, everybody. Um, No, not necessarily, Sheila. Remember that the green card sponsorship is based on an offer of future employment. Therefore, um, until the sponsored uh, foreign worker obtains his or her green card, technically, he or she is not obligated to work for that sponsoring employer. Um, Therefore, the sponsored employee may work for other employers while the green card case is still in process. Um, they can do it on, on, in an H-1B status or in, on, uh, with an employment authorization document. Um, and as long as they intend to go back to the sponsor, sponsoring employer uh, once the green card is issued, technically, um, under the law uh, that exists today, um, they should be fine. However, what determines whether the employee would be able to continue, as I said, is the intent. And, however, the best way to show intent is to be w- actually working for the sponsoring employer um, so that it's clear um, to USCIS, to the government, that the employer is um, willing and able to go through with the um, green card offer of permanent, uh, I'm sorry, offer of permanent employ- employment, and the sponsored employee is also willing to go through with the process. When this intent of the permanent um, employment offer on which the green card case was initially based no longer exists, then it invalidates the green card case. And um, unless the sponsored individual qualifies for AC21, the green card case um, is no longer valid. Okay, Anna. Well, I guess one of the biggest questions or concerns from an employer's perspective, uh, which is often something I get asked during my consultations, is if the person has never worked with the employer from day one, then all of the issues dealing with the financial ability to pay for the employer still are very much at issue and can be much more problematic because then the employer has to show that much higher on their tax returns in terms of gross revenues, net revenues, adjusted gross income, etc. So although that's not the focus clearly of today's talk, I just want you all as employers to realize that, hey, if we can sponsor family or friends or other people down the road through the green card process, the ability to pay is still an issue, and the ability to pay from the date of filing the labor certification or the priority date until the date the green card is actually approved, which could be decades, as we know, during that entire time, you all as employers would be required to show the financial ability to pay similar to what we are already doing with the I-140 petition approval. That's exactly correct, Sheila. And I just wanted to add that the best way to show um, the uh, validity of the uh, permanent employment offer on which the green card case is based is to actually employ the individual and to actually pay him or her the profit wages. 
that's the best way to um, and that's the easiest way because so the person's working doing the work it shows intent of everybody and with regard to financial ability to pay you don't have to show the net profits or the adjusted gross income f and pay a whole lot in taxes because you're already paying the employee the full required salary so that makes perfect sense and I know Anna mentioned that part before but I didn't want you as an employer to say well how does it work in terms of the money so Aaron let's come back to you so what are the specific green card portability requirements in order to satisfy AC21 adjustment of status portability you know when AC21 the when AC21 portability first came out it came out as a law that did not that predated something that was called concurrent filing of the I140 and 45 when the priority dates were current. I mention this because all it simply says in the law is it says that if there a petition, the 45 petition or application remains unadjudicated for 180 days, then the individual employee has the ability to pick up the process and to move it to another company as long as they're going to be performing job duties in the same or similar classification. But once concurrent filing came out, meaning the ability to file an I-140 and an I-45 at the same time, it did create questions about whether or not you required an I-140 approval. Right now, what I've been advising clients is as follows. I say if you have a labor certification approval, the safest thing is if you have an I-140 approval and you have an I-45 pending for 180 days, that can be a trigger for AC21 portability, the ability to pick up your process and move it to another company as long as you're performing a job in the same or similar classification. Alternatively, if your case, the I-140, is not based on a labor certification, such as based on a multinational executive, somebody that's doing national interest waiver, outstanding prof uh, professor, researcher, extraordinary ability, there you would just look to see if the I-140 is approved and if the 45 is pending for 180 days. And again, that ability should vest to be able to pick up the process and move it to another company as long as you're performing job duties in the same or similar job classification. Okay, and so that brings us to the uh, important issue of what is considered the same or similar job occupational classification uh, to be able to qualify under AC21. That question is probably the most common consultation that I would get on AC21. You know, do I qualify, I as an employee or the new employer um, that's hiring somebody who is sporting under the AC21 portability provisions, wanting an opinion on what does and does not qualify? Usually, most employers or the individual who's joining a new company would submit an AC21 package which outlines the statutory requirements or the actual statute itself, the law, showing eligibility under the AC21 portability provisions. From the employer's perspective, this requires a letter from the new employer establishing that the employee will have the same or similar job duties to the one which the person was initially sponsored as indicated on the labor certification and the I-140 petition. Now, obviously, it's very common, as most of you as green card sponsoring employers know, that the employee does not have access to the labor certification or the I-140 petition because those are considered to be the property of the employer. 
since many of you don't allow the employee to get a copy of that, um, it really creates a little bit of a problem from the employer, new employer's perspective and the employee's perspective because the only way to be 100% sure that the new job is in fact the same or similar to the earlier green card sponsored job, you need to look at the documents and ensure that they are identical or similar. And often the individual may file a Freedom of Information Act or FOIA request uh, if they have the information on the I-140, which a lot of individuals have ended up doing, but also it, it, it results in some confusion with respect to um, you know, the job classification being same or similar. And again, as we pointed out earlier, because there are no regulations, um, it certainly uh, results in some confusion and gray area. Um, I know last week when we had the meeting with the um, USCIS, with both the USCIS director, Alessandro Mayorkas, and their general counsel, Roxana Bacon, we asked about when are regulations expected on AC21, and they said, well, it's very, very cumbersome. It's very difficult. It's not as easy as it used to be. You have to go through a million hoops, including the Office of Management and Budget. So don't expect it. Don't hold your breath. They've been working on it for years now, but don't expect And they could not give us any kind of time frame of when it would be released. Um, so, so Anna, I know another very important issue with AC21, besides the same or similar, is the I-140. The issue of the I-140 whether it's approved, whether it's spending, the impact of that on the individual. So first, let's talk about AC21. Does it require that the I-140 petition itself have been approved? Sheila, I want to go back to what Aaron uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago. Um, he was talking about the fact that when AC21 initially became the law, uh, it was not possible to find, uh, file an I-485 concurrently with the petition. Therefore, there was no question. I-140 approved, only then you can file a 485 application. However, since the enactment of the um, statute, uh, it became possible uh, to file the, a petition and the 485 concurrently with it. So that's why it's, um, this question is extremely complicated uh, right now. Um, so, USCIS, as we mentioned already, um, uh, issued uh, a lot of memoranda, and they also adopted a decision. Maybe um, some people heard about it. It's called Matter of Al-Wazan, uh, and it talks about how AC-21 should be interpreted, including the question of unadjudicated I-140s. Um, so when an individual decides to port their green card case to a new employment and the I-140 is still pending, what to do in that situation? Well, the current common understanding of the law is that the uh, I-140 should be approved before the applicant can benefit from AC-21. Uh, it, it, however, it's not to say that an individual can, uh, cannot, absolutely cannot move to a new employment uh, when the I-140 is uh, still pending. It is possible, but before AC-21 uh, will apply, the I-140 will have to be adjudicated and approved. 
Okay. And I know that's what the USCIS, I remember the previous general counsel, Robert Devine, had mentioned at another annual immigration law conference that don't advise anybody, the new employer or the employee moving, to ever think of moving until and unless the I-140 is approved because you're taking your risk, because it could get denied, it could be RFE'd, uh, and if it's pending, you're taking a risk if the earlier employer decides to revoke or to withdraw the application while it's still pending. So you're taking your chances because as we discussed earlier, the I-140 petition belongs by law, like the labor certification, only to the employer, and the only during the I-485 stage does the individual get into the equation. So you all as employers really end up owning those first two pieces of document, very important processes uh, during the green card process. So Aaron, let's go back to you now. So from the employer, from the petitioning employer's perspective, if the sponsored employee leaves the employment, what should the employer be aware of? Well, the first thing is there is, unlike H-1B, there is no law or regulation or statute or some kind of secret decoder ring handshake that requires an employer to withdraw an I-140. Again, I want to say that there's no law or rule that requires an employer to withdraw an I-140. So leaving the I-140 in place, unlike the H-1B, leaving the I-140 in place should not create a problem for the particular employer uh, who has somebody leaving. Uh, there is occasionally an issue that we see come up which Sheila had alluded to at the start when she was talking about uh, the future employee needing to demonstrate ability to pay. There is a situation that has come up from time to time where the USCIS will look at I-140 approvals, count the ability to pay for multitude, multiple employees, and then look at the company's financials. And in that situation, it might make sense to withdraw because the less I-140s that are out there, the more likely that you can demonstrate ability to pay, but there is absolutely no requirement, and for the most part, we've seen zero harm in, not, in withdrawing. There is an issue of concern, though, in terms of the employer that is being ported to, which I want to mention, because there is a risk when a person ports. Even if you have the labor cert approved, the I-140 approved, and the I-45 pending for 180 days, we have seen from time to time where an employer will withdraw that the USCIS will take that opportunity, that withdrawal moment, to revisit the bona fide, the, the, the bona fides, the legitimacy of the original approval. And if they revisit the bona fides of the original approval and they say, hey, we're withdrawing this, but we're not sure it should have ever been approved in the first place, so therefore we're going to say, yes, it's a withdrawal, but instead of accepting the employer's withdrawal, we're going to go ahead and deny the case uh, because we think it shouldn't have been approved in the first place. That can create a problem for the portability. So what I would say is as follows. A withdrawal by an employer after the 45 is pending for 180 days and after the I-140 is approved should not create a problem. However, if the USCIS looks at the I-140 and finds a different basis for denying the application, that can create a problem. Okay, Aaron. So I guess uh, the whole issue about the revocation and withdrawal has already been dealt with um, at this point. 
Let's just go to the issue with Anna at this point, unless there's something else missing here. Um, because um, the employee really, I mean, at this, this is the part where it gets a little tricky with the employer and employee issues, um, where we you know, have to figure out, okay, how does it benefit the prior employer? How does it benefit the future employer? The whole issue of ability to pay, which is a big deal for the company. Uh, and USCI is looking at all of the factors in determining the employer, you know, the ability to pay and what needs to happen. Um, so the effect of the I-140 withdrawal on a previously sponsored worker pretty much uh, could uh, create a problem in the sense that the USCIS often ends up issuing the um, notice of intent to deny the 485, but really under AC-21, as long as the I-140 was filed and pending and approved and the 485 was spending at least 180 days, the argument can absolutely and still needs to be made that AC-21 portability applies, eligibility should work, and therefore the person should be eligible for AC-21 portability. Now it depends, obviously, from, for, for you all as the employers, uh, which perspective, I mean, are you the original green card sponsoring employer or are you the employer who is hiring an employee under the AC-21 portability provisions because obviously your perspective is going to vary a little depending on that circumstance. Uh, so you need to, as the employer, be mindful that if the prior employer revokes the I-140 and you're the new employer, it could impact the employment authorization document, meaning the ability to work if your employer, if your employee doesn't have a backup H-1B status through you, through your employment. And one of the reasons we often recommend to people to continue to extend the H-1 status is that way you have some backup protection as the new employer so the person doesn't have to pack their bags and leave as soon as the 485 is denied and the EAD is revoked or canceled. And, and some people actually prefer to also start a backup perm, a new green card process, especially when they believe that the new job is no longer either identical or similar enough that to err on the side of caution, they prefer to start a new perm process. Very good. So Anna, let's understand. From the new employer's perspective, where the employee ports the green card, what sorts of issues should the new employer now deal with? Um, okay. Uh, before we start talking about that, there was something, Sheila, you said that um, I want to... Um, go back to briefly, if I may. Sure. Um, with respect to the petition and employer um, and uh, revocation or withdrawal of I-140 petitions for employees who um, no longer want to uh, be are sponsored by you, um, something for you to remember that USCIS very frequently looks at all of the filed petitions to determine the cumulative ability to pay requirements. So if the petition is not withdrawn, then it would be taken into account uh, with regard to showing uh, ability to pay, the ability to pay requirement with regard to uh, someone who is still being sponsored by the employer. So that's something, that's a consideration that you may want to take into account when you decide whether or not to um, to request that the petition uh, for an employee who is no longer being sponsored be withdrawn. Uh, that's with regard to the employers, to the sponsoring employers. Uh, to answer your question, Sheila, from the new employer's uh, perspective, 
Of course, um, the employer obviously benefits from um, the filing made by the initial sponsor. But you have to be careful. It would be advisable to consult with uh, a competent immigration attorney to make sure that all the eligibility requirements have been met with regard to AC21. That's why, as, um, as Sheila mentioned already, uh, a new employer may think about sponsoring uh, the worker who ports uh, their green card case to your employment. Uh, they may want to sponsor them for non-immigrant status such as H or L, so that if the 45 is denied for whatever reason, um, the employee has a valid status to fall back onto uh, and continue uh, be able to continue employment without interruption. So. Um, it's advisable to consult with a lawyer and to make sure that whatever happens with the green card case, the employee will be able to continue working for you. Okay, and I guess the mo I'm, I'm going to guess that majority of you all as employers are concerned and want to, you know, are tempted when the individual employee leaves your employment to um, want to revoke or withdraw the I-140 because you're afraid of the tough RFEs. But keep in mind, as Aaron pointed out earlier, there is no statute or regulation of any kind requiring a person to withdraw, requiring the employer to withdraw or revoke the I-140 petition. It is not required by law, unlike the, in the H-1B context. It absolutely serves no purpose other than, I guess, giving you some gleeful uh, uh, joy to feel like somebody just left your employee and you don't want this pending out there and you want to avoid the op possibility of an RFE. And the RFEs in the I-140 context generally tend to be where the company is much smaller and the profit and loss is just about a break-even point or very close to that. Usually it's not asked where there are substantially large or huge revenues. Aaron, I know we're trying to wrap up and we're very mindful of our you know 30 to 40 minute time frame that we try to maintain in these teleconferences. So I'm going to have you just talk a, a briefly about some of the unusual scenarios when AC21 adjustment of status portability can be utilized. I think one of the best ways to talk about when it can be utilized is when you're focusing on a particular company that's restructuring, such as an acquisition, a spinoff, a merger, buyout, or any other type of corporate change, really. Uh, the resulting entity is usually required to refile I-140 petitions to show that a corporate restructuring has occurred. However, some employers may choo choose to utilize AC-21 employees, uh, AC-21 portabilities, portability for employees that were initially sponsored by the old company. So if you're in a situation where the labor is approved, I-140 is approved, 45 pending, 180 days, you're going through a corporate restructuring, it's a new entity, it's clearly the same or similar job classification, instead of having to follow the rule of refiling I-140s, you could be in a good position to be able to rely on AC-21, and that should hopefully save the company a lot of time and expense. One interesting case that we had, uh, which uh, worked out quite nicely, was where an employee actually said, it's time for me to move on, they moved on to another company that was the same or similar occupational classification. Once they moved on, they realized that, hey, this was not the place I want to be, and they elected to go back to their old company. In that situation, we were actually successful in being able to argue that AC-21 portability worked to leave and AC-21 portability worked 
for them to be able to return. Okay. Uh, Anna, would you briefly discuss the interplay, if you will, between the sponsored employee leaving the original employer and the, the new employer, and then the interests of the two parties in terms of the employer and employee, which often diverge because obviously they have different goals at this point. So what, what can be done or what should be done in such a situation? Sure. Um, it's something that has been mentioned here today, but I think is worth repeating uh, so that everybody is clear. The labor certification and the I-140 petition absolutely belong to the employer, but the 485 application is filed by the employee and belongs to that employee. So the uh, employer, the sponsoring employer, should not have complete control over the 485 application when the employee is leaving. And we've had situations when we uh, cons uh, consulted and advised um, people who come to us for our advice, and they report to us that the uh, old petitioning employer did not release the 45 filing. That's something that belongs to the employee. And obviously, when the employee decides to move on to a new job, the interests of the petitioning employer and the sponsored employee diverge. Usually, the lawyer who represented both parties, and usually it's the uh, employer's lawyer, would have to disclose the situation to both of the parties. But in no case, uh, the lawyer should, again, uh, refuse to provide a copy of the 485 on behalf of the employer. Uh, that's uh, probably the main uh, scenario that we've accounted uh, with regard to the employee leaving the employer and their interests uh, diverging. Okay. And I know that during the ELA conference, the ELA annual conference um, in early July uh, of 2010 of this year, just a few days ago, uh, the, the, many of the speakers talked obviously about dual representation and ethical issues uh, for law firms and for the lawyer representing both the employer and the employee in most green card cases. But there was a lot of discussion how the employer or the employer's attorney could potentially represent just one party by making, make, signing off clear-cut consent and waivers from all sides on just with the clear understanding that the attorney only represents one side and absolutely has no, that the employee cannot rely on the employer. There's a lot of gray area on this issue. There's a lot of discussion, but there was a lot of, lot of panels where this issue was discussed and it was actually recommended that, um, this, um, that, this, uh, that, that it is potentially possible to do that. So, you know, to sort of try to wrap it up and conclude, you know, we, we obviously find that there is some sort of a conflict between the original green card sponsoring employer, the new employer, if you're the new employer now wanting to hire the individual or if you were the original employer, and obviously the individual employee who's worried about, you know, his or her own status and the family and their ability to work for the spouse and adult children. So you have a lot of overlaying areas, you have complexities, and the fact that the USCIS has not issued guidance or regulations on a lot of gray areas adds to the complex nature of AC21 adjustment of status portability. Uh, the, the crux of the issue is obviously you need to have very good counsel or representation to guide you with this process, a competent law firm or attorney, and we would certainly be honored to help anybody, any of you, in terms of helping you with the, the initial perm filing or when you guys hire an individual on an AC21 processing case. 
Again, we appreciate your time to join us in today's conference call. On behalf of Attorney Aaron Finkelstein, Anna Stepnova, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you. And we would be honored and it would be a pleasure to continue to help you in any way we can with all of your immigration cases. As our slogan says, we know your immigration matters. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day and a rest of the week.